Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Cash's Corner. Jan, what are we talking about today? Well, I think, you know, given part of your wheelhouse while you were in the Trump administration, I do think we need to do the prisoner swap with Brittany Griner. We need to cover that, even though it was a little while ago. But I think the big thing these days is the Twitter files. And What's like, going on at Twitter? <laughs> well, actually, if you look at the mainstream media, this is one of the things we need to talk nothing. Apparently, like there's just there's there's nothing big going on. Well, actually, right? let me just jump in on that right there. Yeah. So I did look at the coverage over the weekend. Mm -hmm. So when we say the majority mainstream media, I mean CBS, ABC, and NBC for right now on TV and CNN. They spent three and a half seconds. That's not like a joke. That's three and a half seconds collectively in the entire weekend talking about anything to do with Twitter and Elon Musk. And I just keep reminding people like. What if Joe Biden's Twitter account had been shut down? It's the only thing they'd be talking about. This double standard, I mean, we've talked about it endlessly in the show, but sorry, I cut you off. I thought this was the one time maybe where the media had a chance to come in and be credible again, maybe. Because we're literally talking about free speech. And there's no two ways of reading everything we've covered about Twitter. It's one direction, one-way censorship, political bias. Um, actors at the FBI and the intelligence community telling Twitter what to censor. And still, you know, it's just a deafening silence from the mainstream media. And, and I'm going to mention something else, which I thought was shocking. And I'm not, I can't remember if we covered this, but I just want to, I want to mention it briefly. One of the things that came out over the last while is that the admins in Twitter could actually look at people's direct messages. So all of those direct oh. messages that people were actually sending to each other They're on Twitter, still, they probably still are. They're, well, you, you kind of assume they are, right? Because they're direct messages. They, I don't know what the terms of service said, but it turned out that these admins could basically hit the tab and look at the direct messages that person had been sending. And I mean, this is, so you could kind of, you know, get a little bit of the inside scoop. I always was saying that the walls have ears here in Twitter, right? So we, I was always trying to move people off of Twitter as we were talking, but I, I didn't imagine that they just simply had access to the DMs, like anybody who's in this admin role. That's kind of Okay, nuts. I didn't know that. That's, yeah. that's next level bad. Supposedly, you're a free speech platform and the reason you create direct messaging is like you have text messaging so that you can go point to point and no one can find out. At least you think there's some level of security. security. Yes, yes, exactly. So now Twitter, we know these same people were directing the Twitter machine to go in and read direct messages. Now you have to wonder, and the next question is, whose? Whose direct messages were they reading selectively? I mean, it's one thing to read a direct message if it says so-and-so is about to commit a crime. I, I totally, I get that. but. That doesn't seem to be the trend uh, with the Twitter staff. Well, one of the things that I found absolutely stunning was this sort of a character that you're very familiar, Mr. Vindman, um, <laughs> his response to what has been happening in Twitter. And he, you know, completely went off the rails. I mean, he was saying, he was comparing, you know, Elon to Goebbels. I mean, <laughs> it's as far as you can go, basically, right? And, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, those 2019 phone calls that he commented on, you know, President Trump and Zelensky, I think he might have really believed what he was saying. I thought he was making the stuff up back then, right? But but if he has this level of visceral hatred to, I don't know, free speech or or you know, anyone sort of going against his vision of the world narrative, I can I can completely imagine. Vinman, we don't personally know each other, but we were on the National Security Council together in the Trump administration.
And personally, yes, to let my bias, you know, as Vinman should have done, um, put it out there, he made up an entire meeting that never took place between me and President Trump during the Trump administration to falsely start a presidential impeachment and then had to come and testify uh, along with Fiona Hill saying who was supporting that baseless statement and say, oh wait, actually we've never met Cash Patel. That was the only true thing they actually ever said. So if they had never met me, how could this meeting have occurred? Now I take that, like you take your perspective on, maybe he was so, not bias is the right word, maybe he was so mentally off kilter. Well, Elon calls it the woke mind virus, okay? And I actually kind of, I really like that construction because it, it's, it, it explains something. Like it explains, you know, believing in some sort of reality is just very different so, for what's happening. So I think both right? I think both things can be true in Vindman's mind. You can totally make it up and you can totally believe it at the same time, but that doesn't make it true. Right. So back to my jury trial days as a public defender, this is a, this is a random analogy. We would represent some of humanity's worst, terrible crimes, murders, drug trafficking, crimes against children, really nasty stuff. And we would call this thing, we came up with this thing called trial psychosis. And we would actually study that case so much and work on a defense so hard that for a split second, we would actually believe it, even though we know what the truth was. And our job was to defend our client. But this is almost akin to that. I think Vindman's coming out so harshly against Elon, but what you're saying is he has to believe it to be true. He, he, in order for him and the mainstream media who are covering Vindman and villainizing Elon now, which is hilarious, by the way, that's a side note, um, I think like they did in Russiagate, they assumed the conclusion, they demanded that it be true, and then worked backwards. And that's what Vindman's doing. You remember, they're attacking a guy that was their savior like two years ago. You know, in all things, free speech, anti-Trump, um, pretty center of the road politically and ideologically. And now he's literally public enemy number one for guys like Vindman. And I encourage our audience to go back and do a little bit of research on who Vindman was and what he's been saying lately. And yes, Truth Social has had some fun with um, some comedic, comedic displays regarding Vindman and Devin Nunes' exchange during the uh, House proceedings when he was under oath. And I want to jump back to, you know, th these Slack messages. There was just these internal discussions, kind of internal direct messaging, internal groups. And so there were all these discussion from these, uh, you know, sa trust and safety groups discussing, uh, should we ban this person? Is, is it reasonable? What do our policies, is, is it a according to our policies? And so, you know, and basically Elon released this to a number of these journalists, Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, and uh, they've been putting these things up. Now, what's really interesting in there is this kind of this recent bat that basically shows that the essentially the Twitter people knew that there was no real basis based on their policies to ban Trump. This is around, you know, January 6th stuff. But at the same time, they were kind of interested in finding a pretext. This is my interpretation, right? And but at the same time, you know, they were they weren't sure what to do because they didn't have they couldn't, you know, kind of meet the bar. There wasn't a rule they could follow. But at the same time, there's this huge groundswell from the employees 
to figure out. In one case, one of them actually quotes Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil. And when I read this thing, it was fascinating. It was like the most perhaps ironic. I didn't even know how to read it because I thought for a moment they were saying what we're doing, what we're doing here is the banality of evil, which I think might be, there's a case for that. You know, this is right. But, but actually what they were saying is allowing this to happen, allowing Trump a voice is essentially the banality of evil. So yeah. what I analogize that to is the two-tier system of justice that we've gone over extensively that this modern-day Department of Justice and FBI have created. They being the FBI and DOJ politicizing targets and manufacturing crimes. They're basically saying, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. I think Twitter took that page out of DOJ's playbook and said, you know, while we're not DOJ, we're working with the FBI. We hate Trump and we don't want him to succeed. So how do we knock him out? How do we take him out? And they collectively, as you saw in these Slack messages, which a lot of our viewership has been reading, has, has shown that even Jack Dorsey, um, who has now come out and, you know, I mean, I think his mea culpa is total BS. I think he wants something. And so these people were collectively, I, you know, I disagree with you a little bit. I guess there was a groundswell maybe at Twitter because so many of them were so like-minded ideologically. But I think the headshot of Twitter had already made their decision internally. They had said, this guy's getting off. We are kicking Donald Trump off Twitter. Now, how do we work backwards when it's uncovered later to say, oh, we did our homework and he had to have violated this or incited this. And now we know it was all bogus. This takes us into the whole election stuff, which we're not going to dive into. But I did see one poll um, that said, had Americans known about the truth behind Hunter Biden's laptop and it being censored at Twitter and all that, one in six people would have changed their votes. That's, I don't know the math, that's how, I don't know how many millions of people, a lot, a lot more people, but I remind the audience that the presidency was decided this last election cycle in three states and 22,000 votes. So for those people who are out there, you know, who have for years have been saying, you know, these conversations about election rigging are you know, anti-American, um, you know, they're just not true. Well, Twitter just gave us a wholesale set of facts to analyze that against. And literally a minority of the media is doing that right now. It's not just the Hunter Biden laptop, no. right? It's just basically all these accounts being, you know, somewhat are in many cases arbitrarily demoted. And then this gaslighting happening, people are saying, it looks like my account, it looks like people are unfollowing me. I think, you know, uh, Eric Weinstein, whose account wasn't increasing. There's a lot of interest. He's a very, he's a very, every, anything he says is very interesting to a lot of people. His account wasn't growing. Every, all these people were basically looking at this, you know, including many of us at the Epoch Times, just thinking there's just something wrong, wrong here. It's obvious, like there's, there's a lot more interest than apparently. The, and we would get gaslighted. Everyone would get gaslighted in the worst ways. They just say, "This is preposterous. It's in your head. You guys just have bad. You guys just have bad content, actually, right?" So, and then it turns out, no. In fact, everybody was right. And the the but but the issue was the perception, because you don't know what you don't know for all these people that just don't see the content, right? They don't get a chance to see that. And the, the starkest example of this to me was the immediate censorship of uh, basically downgrading of uh, Dr. J. Bhattacharya's, you know, account, one of the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, had this, you know, sort of traditional, very 
thought through perspective on pandemic response, shut down. So there, you know, we, doctors or basically the medical community was prevented from having this discussion. Created this, it creates this illusion of consensus around the one way you have to do things, which is lockdowns. Right? No, and and look, I don't think we're going to get into it today, but. You know, we we in the rest of the world have been talking about, you know, the Twitter files and Donald Trump and censorship of that. Nobody's even gotten to the COVID implications. Um, guys like Dr. Bhattacharya and other people putting out scientifically based data for the world to read and it being censored again for political reasons because they wanted to satisfy a political narrative. Just think how many millions of people get their news from Twitter. A lot of people in the world. And when there was a plague, a lot of people in the world were on Twitter all the time. So the ramifications for Twitter are much larger than just the election, what they did to Donald Trump. Um, we, you know, we'll get to in the future, maybe if they release all the COVID files, let's call them that. For they, lack of even as we're filming, they might be, we yeah. might get the beginnings of those today. It'll be interesting. But I keep saying, Jan, the one thing that they have failed on and they continue to fail on, and I don't know why, is they are not releasing the internal memos and emails between Twitter and its leadership and the FBI and DOJ and the IC. And I just don't understand it. They are missing the window. Um, you know, in, in a month, the mainstream media will say, oh, we covered it. It was all nothing to see here. And then when we come back in a month and say, look, there's the email from DOJ and FBI, they'll be like, oh, it's the Russiagate guys. It's another conspiracy. And then a year, they'll come out and say, oh, we got that one wrong, but we're way past that now. No one wants to cover it. I mean, this is, if Elon doesn't understand that this is the play they're running for a man that smart, it's kind of shocking to me. And, you know, I have seen Taibi and folks put out emails saying, oh, we've seen nothing yet to, you know, show FBI or DOJ, you know, direct involvement. You have an agent from the FBI who literally said under oath, in a deposition to an attorney general in the state of Missouri that we were they were heavily involved <laughs> with weekly meetings. So why these guys haven't gone and found those still, we asked for it weeks ago, we're still asking for it today, is, is shocking. And you know, I know I'm not on Twitter, but somebody posted one of my interviews on Twitter, which Elon directly responded to regarding Perkins Cooey. And it turned out we were right on Perkins Cooey. Well, and so on, on, on my side, I think I want to kind of reiterate this call to Elon Musk and to everyone. You know, this is a huge opportunity. Release all the files. Let's let the little corner of Twitter, let's let the hashtag unleash the sleuths. Let's get some real, real action of these people who, who already have a lot of pieces in their minds to start putting together, you know, really, really what, what happened and who was involved. I mean, I, I think the opportunity is massive to show the world. Yeah, and, and no, look, having my experience and uncovered Russiagate and all that thing, it's not like everyone at Twitter was talking to a bunch of people at the FBI. My guests, Yoel Roth, Vijay Agata, Jack Dorsey, and a couple of other people that were in that sphere that we keep seeing messages on um, internally, who are the decision makers, who are the guys carrying the, the censorship campaign on Twitter, were probably going point to point with these FBI agents. And... To me, why that hasn't been put out there is one of the most frustrating things. And I, and I know we're going to talk about Roth, Yoel Roth here in a second because he's one of the most problematic figures, I think, that Twitter has ever had next to Vijay Gad or Gadda. And, um, but the Republicans are saying when they take the gavels, those two are going to be subpoenaed. Okay, let's see if they show up. And how long are you going to wait?
And what documents are you going to have from the FBI and DOJ to question them when they say, which they will, oh, Congressman or woman, I don't remember. Well, here's your email to FBI saying X, Y, or Z. Put it up for the world to see. And Congress has the only lever that we, we as citizens don't have, which is the subpoena power to get it from DOJ and FBI. Will that DOJ and FBI cooperate? Probably not, but I haven't seen anyone in Congress make a request for it. So as much as we're asking Elon to do X, Y, and Z, you know, we, Congress needs to step up and make some serious subpoena demands and document requests from their FBI and DOJ. So thanks to all these releases, we have a lot of internal communications from Yoel Roth and some of his deliberations. And but there's one that Michael Schellenberger actually highlighted. In 2017, Yoel Roth tweeted that, you know, I think, and I quote, there are actual Nazis in the White House. So again, that's the mentality with which he's you know, coming in, basically. I mean, it goes to our point earlier. They had already made their decisions. I mean, if there were, he's calling people in the White House that I worked with actual Nazis, that's how they felt about the entire Trump regime. And from a private citizen standpoint, you can feel however you want. You can call however you want anything you want. But they were at Twitter. And for a guy like Yoel Roth, who's now, when we're seeing his personal communications come out on a daily basis, um, he would be one of the first targets I have um, for a subpoena from Congress to testify uh, about, you know, targeted questions. Who are the Nazis at the White House? Um, was that part of your decision-making process at Twitter? Here are your internal communications. We have them with the FBI. Who else did you meet with and why did the FBI direct you or ask you, Twitter, to censor X, Y, or Z? And why did you, Twitter, agree to do it at a rate of 50%? You know, these are the actual questions that haven't yet been answered by any of the releases. That's my problem. As sensational as a lot of this is, a lot of it we knew. A lot of it's now sort of confirmed. And the bad actors are being glorified, not villainized, glorified in the media for their heroic actions, them being Yoel Roth, Vijay Gatta, and, and others for, for taking down, you know, Donald Trump, so to speak. But the only thing they're taking down is, is, is free speech. And so... I don't think you'll have that course correction that you and I sort of and others want until we actually get to the intersection of Twitter and the FBI. And right now we're nowhere near it. So the crux of this for me is that, you know, when someone says there are actual Nazis in the White House, that means they believe that basically the worst humanity has to offer is in charge of U.S. policy. Um, and to me, that allows for a mentality which says, well, maybe anything goes to stop these people, right? I mean, I've, if I actually thought there were actual Nazis running things, I might, do th I might do lots of things to try to stop that, right? I want to build on this a little bit because we were talking about this meet, this, you know, legacy media just basically essentially giving three seconds collectively over the weekend in, the, in terms of broadcast. And there's very, very little, if any, in, in the print media as well. I guess the question is, what would they cover? I mean, it's just, it's so obviously, so deeply wrong what, what happened, right? That, that they simply, they, they, they can't cover it because it would be admitting, perhaps, that this, that this, is, this was a problem. Well, more than that, they, they were in on it. They were a co-conspirator in that problem. And that's the other thing. Was Twitter in communication with these media outlets? Are they in on it? Mainstream media, the legacy media, did they talk to the FBI and Twitter? Nobody's talked about that. 
And I think for certain executives and officials at the mainstream legacy media, as I call them fake news, were 100% communicating with the Yol Roths and VJ Gads of the world and the FBI, just like they did in Russiagate. And um, that's probably why they are being silent. And unless we get the documents, they're going to win. The one thing that we do know is that the government spent billions of dollars on, let's call it COVID propaganda, right? And all in a very, very specific direction, all with a very specific behavioral response from us in mind. And that policy was shaped with the suppression of, you know, a whole lot of voices, which were very important. So I'm really excited to see what what we'll learn next and, and how this if actually worked. If we get it, yes, that's right. Well, listen, so, you know, let's let's put on your um, counterterrorism hat from, you know, when, when you were deputy assistant to the president. Let's just talk about this, this prisoner swap with Brittany Griner. I, of course, I'm glad that she's home, right? That, that That's important. The question is, you know, was it worth it? Does this make sense? This guy's a very serious character, arms dealer, right? That, that was traded. That's, what do you think? Yeah. So look, real quick for the audience, you know, back at the White House when I was deputy assistant president for counterterrorism, the whole hostage portfolio was nested under my uh, position. So I had a big team covering everything from, you know, Al-Qaeda to Hezbollah to Iran threats to terrorists. And one of the big sections was Hostages, everything hostages, negotiations, operations, policies, etc. And so, as, as our audience knows, we usually tape on Wednesdays and our show airs Friday night, and sometimes we miss a big piece of news. And normally, we would probably not talk about this except, well, basically, I said, Jan, we have to talk about this because it's so near and dear to me. And you're right, the first thing I said immediately on the media interviews afterwards that I did was, it's always good and it's great when an American comes home from captivity. It's always a win. But you have to look at the cost-benefit analysis of it. And that's maybe offensive to some people. But when we were in these positions and doing hostage operations, hostage negotiations, we always had to calculate. And this I can tell you from my personal experience with President Trump on these conversations is not do we want the American home. That answer is always yes. It's always yes. It's if we get and negotiate for this person, is it going to make it harder for us to get the remaining 10 or 12 Americans in captivity in places like Iran and Russia and Afghanistan and other terrible places around the world? That's a critical question that we always analyzed. And what hasn't been reported on much is, and actually I'm happy to share this here, is I had a private conversation with President Trump about the Griner release just a few days ago. And then it came out in the media, um, you know, his position, which is 100% true. You know, we talked about Victor Boot, the merchant of death, and doing a unilateral swap for Paul Whelan, the former retired Marine that's there. And the commander in chief, President Trump, decided that that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, that would put America in a worse off position, giving away a man who was literally a terrorist and responsible for the deaths of American civilians and American service members through his arms trading uh, enterprise around the world. And I thought that was the correct decision then. Of course, now he's being attacked for that position by the media. He, you know, there was even something said about it by the Whelan family. And the one thing I never hold um, hostage families responsible for personally is the way they feel, because you cannot possibly imagine what they are, what they are going through without their loved ones. Um, at home with them where they should be. So 
I don't hold it against him personally, but it was the right move then not to do it, which is why it was the wrong move to do it now. And not even for Paul Whelan, but for Brittany Griner, um, when you when you put the chips on the table, it's a differing calculation. So it, uh, you know, look, Roger Carstens, who is currently the, uh, the hostage envoy for this administration, held that position in the Trump administration. I know Roger personally. He and I traveled to Syria to meet with um, Assad's number two guy on hostage matters because they had Austin Tice and they have other Americans that we wanted out. So we were the first guys to go there in 10 years. We know the mission and what it takes to get, get over there and just make the ask because we promised the families we would make the ask. And the lift behind that was enormous. But similarly, we can't go over there in places like Syria and say, what do you guys want? We're going to give you anything you want. You just got to get Americans. You just got to give us all of our Americans back. Because what's going to happen is, and tragically marked by word, now here's what's happened. Joe Biden has set a whole new stage for hostage negotiations. Basically, the, the leaders of our enemies are on now on notice. If you have an American or if you take an American going forward, this administration will literally give you your biggest prize to get that person out. That is a terrible, terrible place for America to be in the world, especially with Al-Qaeda on the rise in Afghanistan and civilians going back into Af Afghanistan from all over the world and matters going on in the Ukraine and matters going on in Southeast Asia and matters going on in Iran and China, where people, Americans are also currently still unlawfully being detained. These countries are now going to say, forget it, unless you give me my number one guy. And, that, and make no mistake about it, that's the other thing that wasn't re really reported. Putin and Victor Boot are like best friends. And it's no secret that Victor Boot was dealing arms sometimes at the behest of Vladimir Putin. So he got his guy back. He got his merchant of death back. And that's what's so problematic for me, having done this work it's going to make it harder for us to even do operations. And what I mean by that is when we send our special forces guys out to actively go on an insurgency and rescue physically a hostage, <clears throat> the calculation now has to be, is it worth it on the ground for that person versus why don't we negotiate harder for that person? So the whole level, the whole playing field changes. And right now there's still at least by my calculus, 10 Americans who are being held hostage or detained. Well, it also sounds to me that like you're saying, like this is sort of incentivizing people to take Americans. That, that's exactly, that's a better way of saying it because now our enemies know the cost of what this administration is willing to give to get an American back. And that was different. And I reminded everybody, Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, brought home 54 hostages and detainees around the world. It's more than every president before him combined. And he didn't give up these types of terrorists like Victor Boot. And so if, if, that, if the Trump administration and we were successful, so successful in that methodology, the question has to be asked is why did it shift under the Biden administration? And if the Biden administration was going to give up the merchant of death, why did they get Paul Whelan for him? If they were willing to do it for Brittany Griner. Paul Whelan has been in detention longer. He's serving a much longer sentence. He's a former Marine. The, you know, the question has to be vague. Were they looking for a political headline? 
Were they looking for some sort of win in the political sphere? And that's a calculation that just didn't enter our ethos when we were doing these matters. So it shifted dramatically. And I think I said this, and it's, it's harsh, but I think it's true. This trade has just made it harder for any American who is still in captivity or detention to be returned in the next couple of years during this administration. And in the same vein, there's an update on flight uh, Pan Am 103. Yeah, so quick recap, Pan Am flight 103 exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing 270 people, 259 on the, in the plane and 11 on the ground. 190 or so were American citizens. It turns out that Libyans at the behest of Muammar Gaddafi, the dictator back then, um, had conspired with his crew to go in and blow up that flight because it would be an act of terrorism against America. And we had had one or two people held um, accountable for it, but not in US courts. We had an individual who was prosecuted and convicted in Scotland and the UK, the main guy, the head guy, McGrehy, but he was released on some compassionate grounds and he died thereafter um, maybe 10 years ago or so. Now these cases, these are actually cases I, I worked on when I was a national security prosecutor in DOJ. And the individual that was just arrested, uh, Masood, is what we call the bomb maker. So for those not familiar with Pan Am 103, literally an individual walked into the airport carrying a suitcase. The allegation is handed the baggage guy some money to get that bag onto the plane. And that was the bomb that exploded midair that causes the downing of the flight. So they now have, um, it's been reported, that this individual that was the bomb maker gave an interrogation um, years after, of course, the flight went down, where he basically admitted that he was the bomb maker and he was working with Gaddafi and the other two guys that we were talking, the other two terrorists, I should say, that we were talking about. So, you know, it, 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 it's to be championed when you have that kind of, you know, victory it is for the, all those families who lost members back then, because uh, the one thing I've learned, at least when it comes to many counterterrorism matters is that the U.S., and thankfully on this instance they did, will continue that effort no matter what. Because I can tell you without getting into details, we ran into obstacle after obstacle after obstacle trying to get the evidence on this, trying to get the right um, defendant capture, trying to get other nations to give them over. Remember, the guy that were, the terrorist that we're talking about right now was in a foreign country. We had to go or have him arrested, have his release negotiated or release to American custody. And he's now in American custody and will be tried in the U.S. court. So it's a tragedy what happened, obviously, at Pan Am 103, but um, hopefully there can be some measure of justice for the victims' families on that one. And sometimes it can take a long time, and I guess, I guess that's the message. Yep. Cash, I think it's time for our shout-out. Yes. This week's shout-out is a fun one. It's to Acoustic Kitty. We love your uh, tagline. We love that name that you have on Truth Social. We see it on our message boards, and we're greatly appreciative of your support for Cash's Corner. And everyone else that was on the live chat last week, it was a great um, discussion that we had simultaneously with our episode, and we'll be doing it again this Friday night. And I also want to mention this weekend is Reads Across America. For those that don't know, um, it happens once a year at every national cemetery in the United States where a 501c3 donates reeds, Christmas reeds, and you are allowed to go to these national cemeteries and lay them at the tombstones of, of our fallen. And I will be doing it as I do every year at Arlington. This year with my friends from uh, their military service, uh, we'll be visiting the Extortion 17 plot, which is the largest special forces 
fatality in U.S. history. And I encourage everyone to, if you can't go out and make it, read about it. Um, it's a very special thing that uh, unifies people to remember our fallen. And uh, I just wanted to take a moment to, to tell you all about it. So thanks for listening in this week. And we will see you next week on Cash's Corner.